white fragility. And I'm the one who even showed you the, that article in the first place. Oh, 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 wait, wait. But is she going to say, fuck you again? Should I apologize on that or not? Who's to say it's the Meg show? Okay, so just for my own clarification, you don't actually want to have a real conversation. You just wanted me to rub your belly and say, don't fret about slavery. You're a good person, hot stuff. And then we go back to eating chow fun, right? Welcome to Radical Listening. I'm your host, Phil Johnson. And I'm your co-host, Clifton Holtznagel. Today, we sat down with two people from the production of Redwood, the production's director, Chip Miller, and the playwright and star herself, Brittany K. Allen. Yeah, we talked about the show, we talked about the process, and we talked at length about how Brittany formed this piece. We talked about the industry. We talked about uh, NYU. It turns out they both went to college together, just as uh, Phil and I went to college together. So it was it was kind of fun because a lot of times uh, the, the two of us have a lot of jokes and inside things that are going on while other people are in the dark. And this time uh, we both had that going on. Both sets of two people had inside jokes. So it was it was just fun to hear them catch up. Um, both very smart, interesting people, and uh, I think you'll hear that. Yeah, for sure. Um, they definitely had a lot to say about working in theater and coming from um, New York theater. And uh, and we talked with Brittany about what it was like to workshop her show as the playwright and the lead actor. Yeah, and the reading that they did at Kansas City Repertory Theater. And ultimately, it was just a really great conversation. These two people are very charismatic and great talkers, and they have a, a lot of really good ideas about um, theater and um, identity, and this conversation will show that. I think um, this is one of the longer episodes, but it's definitely worth it. Stick through all the way to, to the end, and uh, a lot of fun stuff comes out. And so here's our interview with Brittany K. Allen and Chip Miller. The new play, Redwood, is currently making its world premiere at Portland Center Stage through November 17th. Today, we're sitting down at Coho Productions with the show's playwright and star, Brittany K. Allen, and the show's director, Chip Miller. Brittany, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Doing wonderful. How about you, Chip? I can't complain. Good, yeah, good, good. We're all here. We're all we here. Are. And this is your co-host, Philip Johnson, everybody. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Off <laughs> to a good start. No, great. So it's great to have you guys here. We've been talking about this for a little while, but this is fun. This is fun. And we've kind of had a conversation rolling here, but I'd like to just dive into Redwood and just here we are. We're a couple weeks into the run. How do you feel about the show? I feel great. I'm having fun. Yeah, I think it's grown a lot. Um, I'm excited for you to see it after a week away, Chip. Um, <laughs> I'm so excited to see it. I'm so excited by it because it's th- that thing of make the theater you want to see and everything that's in redwood is all of the things that i'm interested in and Mm -hmm. so to get to work on a play that allows for that is a gift it's great so um i i was actually thinking earlier today i want to know what the genesis moment was for this play like when did you say oh i want to write a play about you know either the relationship or ancestry like how did this all start Hmm. well there are um, it's hard to divide into two moments because there were two influencing autobiographical Mm -hmm. things that went into the play one was 
Real story. I have um I have an aunt who became really interested in charting my family's genealogy. Okay. She's not like Uncle Stevie. I always feel compelled <laughs> to add in case my family's member <laughs> like listening. But um yeah, she uh, I have an aunt who did a big deep dive into Ancestry.com and started turning up all of these by turns upsetting and also really exciting pieces of information and she she did write to our family and try to get everybody really involved and excited and I I clocked resistance from some members of the family so that was mm. just that conundrum led to the character of Uncle Stevie and then the other prong of it is when I started writing the play I was in a an interracial relationship with a white gentleman and we would have these really tricky conversations the one I think of in particular was it was shortly after Mike Brown died, and I remember I had this, like, very emotional, you know, the reaction a lot of people had and a lot of black people had, but I I picked this big fight with my partner about it because I he just wasn't reacting to this the way that I, like, and I, I felt really aware of, like, a paucity of black people in my life that I needed to have around me to process this with or something, and it was one of the, it was, I mean, it's a little, it was sort of the influence of scene five in the play this big fight that the the couple has mm -hmm. where it was not really about anything but it was also it was just about like rage and like what is it to be in this relationship where i feel like i won't ever be able to fully delve into this part of myself with you in a moment when it feels so pronounced so that was the genesis of like megan drew as a couple but it's evolved a lot and incorporates some other things now but yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so yeah. when you had that moment that's when you started writing the play or when did the play mm. actually start? It would be disingenuous to say that I started writing it chronologically. So the first scene I wrote was the one with Uncle Stevie in the dance studio. And that was, that just like came to me in a burst in most of the first Meg and Mom scene. And I I wrote those pretty close to each other. Mm -hmm. And then I kept the play in a drawer and didn't really know how to get into it until I had this fight with my then partner. Mm -hmm. And then, then it, yeah, it unspooled from there. Yeah. So how long ago was that? Um, let's see. I was 25, I think. So I'm, that was some years ago. <laughs> You're already doing that. <laughs> Come on, millennials don't do that. Yeah, I know. It was four years ago. <laughs> yeah. No, it's hard though. It's weird yeah. one to build a play and be like, oh, right. I did, they take so much work. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's so many iterations of it, so many like versions of my head. I'm like, when did that even, when did that happen? But, yeah. And I, I heard that had something to do with how you named it Redwood, because here I am mm -hmm. in the Pacific Northwest, and I go to see a show, a new play called Redwood. I'm like, this must be something about the Northwest. Oh, no. Not quite. <laughs> 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 but that's interesting. Yeah. So could you talk about how you came to the title? Oh, sure. Well, to be perfectly honest with you wonderful people, and this, sounds, this is like a sell-outy thing to say, but... I, I I work with pretty, my titles are, tend to be kind of impressions, you know, I'm just mm -hmm. like, oh, this is the word that I keep coming back to and I can't think of a better one and it's stuck now and I can't fix it. But yeah. uh, I, I came to Redwood because like the, the the essential plainness of the play to me is Uncle Stevie building the family tree and it being mm. this tangled, messy, mammoth thing. And so the largest trees in America seemed like a fitting title, like as a, just as a visual. And before even this production, which involves... Mm -hmm involves redwoods in a way i shan't disclose but <laughs> yeah i did the visual of the tree was very important to how i was thinking about the play while i was writing it um yeah 
Although I learned just this week, my parents have been on like a tour of the Pacific Northwest. Apparently, they were like, "Yo, we we've been in wine country for a week before we see." I was like, "What are you doing?" But um, they went and toured um in California, a pod of redwoods and the mm-hmm. forest there. And they were telling me all this amazing history that they learned, which I'm like, it ought to have behooved me to have known about this much earlier. But like <laughs> how they grow in pods, these trees, and they're incredibly resilient and. A lot of them are resistant to fires in a way that are it's not true of a lot of hmm. other trees in the Pacific Northwest and because of what they, they carry and then, of course, how old they are and yeah. how huge. And I thought that was so fascinating. I was like, right, all this stuff is like dovetails in the metaphor. Hmm. Yeah. I took a class in college called American Forests, and I learned a lot about trees. I just called the class Trees. <gasps> and it, <laughs> And it was, we talked about redwoods too, and how when they're not babies, but when they're kind of mid sized trees, they almost have to burn uh-huh. because it makes their, the outside of the bark or something like stronger. And I thought, I always hmm. thought that was really interesting because if they don't burn, then they're actually weaker and hmm. they can't stand up, you know, they can't grow as tall. Hmm. I love that. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Yeah. So when did you become a part of this process, Chip? Because it seems like you guys know each other uh, or have known each other for a while or something. We've known each other for a little while. We did uh, our undergrad together at NYU. Okay, and, there it uh, is. At the Playwrights Horizon studio. Mm-hmm. And got to play around sometimes. Uh, <laughs> we uh, were part of one or two theater companies that <laughs> uh, some still exist in different iterations uh, in very different iterations um, but uh redwood was on the kilroy's list in 2017 and at the time i was working as the assistant artistic director at kansas city rep and marissa wolf was the director of new works there and whenever the Kilroy's list came out, I was like, oh, let's just go through this and find the plays that are super interesting because we would do these readings. And it was this incredible series where once a month we would get a play and bring it to a reading for we would have like a week where it was all actor of all the actors bring the play right in, just get to spend time working on the play. And I read the description of Redwood and I thought, I know a Brittany Allen. I'm going to try to get that script. And so I got the script and I read it. And I think I texted you like as soon as I finished it. And I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This play. I was like two months off of a breakup uh, that was in an interracial relationship and had been having a lot of thoughts about what is it to be a black partner in an interracial relationship with a white partner. And the ways in which it was the year after Trump's election and that like feeling of all of these things that are hard to talk about and hard to explain. And I like at my partner at the time was incredible. Mm -hmm. And still there was just this like space between us uh, that I couldn't quite reconcile. And then this play came along and I, I, every third page I was taking screenshots and sending it to friends and saying like, Oh my God, this play is talking about things in a way that I, I, I didn't know you could talk about them. Mm. Um, and then Brittany responded to my text and was like, yeah, that's my play. And I emailed it to Marissa and I was like, we have to do a reading of this play. 
And so that would probably be like October, November of 2017. And we did a reading of it in Kansas City in January of 2018. Okay. How much has it changed since then? Oh, man. I think a lot. What do you think? Quite a bit. I still still have that... uh, reading draft on my desk in at my office and, oh my god um i've gone back to it <laughs> you look back I, at it like what is this uh, I, re- I read through that draft before the first rehearsal because it's like uh-huh. w- what is the gap we're bridging um what, what what is all of this time and what has happened uh, i remember at that workshop i gave you a really bad note and uh, what? Uh-huh. i remember i remember it so clearly i gave you a note of like she needs to have conversations with her friends. <laughs> oh, no. Um, no, but I, that stuck with me. I don't think that was a bad note at all. That's kind of hilarious because ultimately the conversations that she has with her friends is that really quick moment <laughs> where they're like, I'm sorry, I can't talk to you because yeah. I'm, I'm in, in love right now. now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, I mean, I think that note actually sparked for me a little bit more specifying in Meg's character. It's funny, I was talking to my... um my aunt the other day who came to see the show and she she mentioned that she felt like oh meg the character like is quite selfish right and i was like mm. well you know that i i didn't write some of that but she had a very strong like she's she reads it's quite selfish to me in a way that's like fun and i'm with it but like, <laughs> I was like oh. and i don't know the the more time passes with this play i i do think like the character of meg is pretty specifically early to mid 20s in a way that mm-hmm. i begin to rec- recognize from a distance as like oh it is that moment when you're just like so wrapped up in your business that like she's neglecting some other things in her life right her mom's mm. well-being and i think there is i don't know at least i'll only speak for myself but my experience the selfishness is kind of integral to the conflict in the play and i i don't i wouldn't call it selfishness necessarily but i i um there're blinders yes, in that way of when you're blinder. like in your early 20s and trying to figure out who am i yeah period yeah. I mean, that, not that we ever really figure <laughs> out who we are but i feel like that that post-college first real job first major relationship moment is oh i'm trying to forge an identity and that's such a difficult behemoth task that <laughs> i have to turn off everything else around me so that i can focus on me and the things that you miss yeah. just because you're trying to become a person mm-hmm. or you're like here i have this identity how did i get it uh-huh. yeah. <laughs> where did this come from <laughs> yeah yeah there's something interesting about being post-college too because you're you just kind of went through a whirlwind of information gathering and trees. identity crisis and trees <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and well Hell but i think this you know and even like yeah substance influences the way you think so you're coming you're coming off of this kind of fantasy world where you're kind of trying to piece things together and the next thing you know you're kind of thrown into the real world and so the way that you answer questions is totally different than you know even five years later Mm -hmm. i wonder where do you think meg ends up Mm. in the end of this play where what, what is she thinking about how does she feel about drew then that's a beautiful question oh man huh i think I mean, so the the scene just before the paint and sip scene you're talking about is certainly the way in this, it is a reconciliation of a kind. And we give Meg and Drew come back together. And I think it's pretty implied that they will, spoiler alert, um, keep doing this work um, or attempt to do this work together. And they renew their commitment to each other in a new way. So I think at paint and sip, 
she has landed in a place that's more like, okay, I begin to see the meat of what building a relationship actually looks like and what it, the effort it will take. But I'm here to do it. And I'm here with my partner. I brought him. Look, mom and look, uncle. Mm-hmm. So I, that's like, to the extent that, that there's a resolution to that character, that's our landing place, I think. Mm-hmm. But wait, I want to I wanna make sure I'm answering your full question. Um, so she, believe, she, she believes him when mm-hmm. he does the grand gesture. Yeah. Now, or she decides to, or yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there, there is the sense of something I love about this play is it, it. There's a lot of conflict in it, but almost all of the conflict are things that are happening internally for these characters. Mm-hmm. Of we see Stevie talk to a person, like like actually talk to a person, maybe three times in the play, mm-hmm. uh, because <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> so much of it is living in this online internal editing emails that i'm going to send to a group of people world and and how we process our thoughts alone Mm -hmm. and so the resolution doesn't want to come out of like some and the world was changed no it's oh i know how to wake up tomorrow morning Mm. i know how to be in this relationship i know how to begin having the conversation of myself as to what perspective on my lineage is Mm -hmm. um the conflicts feel huge because inside of ourselves, every conflict f- feels huge. I mean, the, 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 the thing I struggle with the most is how to not make the conflicts in my life feel so large mm-hmm. um, because they're generally small. But my mind immediately goes to, oh, God, I ruined that thing. And like, I'm going to spend the next 48 hours beating myself up mm-hmm. over that like one mistake that no one else notices but inside for me it is it is a three-act drama (laughs) where it's just oh this is the worst thing that's ever happened yeah and none of the characters are actually in conflict with each other (laughs) they're in conflict with themselves and when you're in conflict with yourself it's so hard to put that on yourself so you look for the person closest to you and say well it's your fault uh, like I, I, I need to get this out some way, and if I just keep it inside, it's it's never going to be able to mature because it's just in this echo chamber. But if I put it out on you, at least now I'll you have, have to respond. Yeah. You have to, and I have a release, right? Um, yeah. Even if it's the the thing that I I wanted causes additional problems, right? At least it's not living in here mm-hmm. anymore. I love that read of the play so beautifully, Chip. Thank you, and and yeah. Before, right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i do think it is it is interior i like that i appreciate the underlining that it's interior i think meg leaves the play being more comfortable not in this obfuscating mom space mm. or like i think she's going to leave this play less inclined to like joke her way through situations and to try to explain them to her partner um mm-hmm. yeah i think it's an internal maturing to the extent that there's character development <laughs> well it's a, there, there's the thing that meg says in that penultimate scene with drew where they're in the process of reconciling and she says she talks about a microaggression that she experiences and she says yes it's horrible but it's not horrible but yeah it's horrible and i think that yeah that's one of my favorite lines in the play yeah. really yeah it stuck oh, with me too i I've, i use that so frequently to describe it's, just like, moments. it's just so well said I, you know <laughs> Because as a, as a young person, mm-hmm. I think that way all the time. Because even 
trying to make that statement in a more complex way is too complex. It's just like, yeah, it's like horrible. Like this thing, you know, this, it went out and this guy cut me off in traffic. And the way he looked at me, it, it wasn't like the worst thing. In the, it wasn't, you know, it, I love the way that that's phrased. It's just, it's very clear. It's a thing. Uh, I was telling you the story earlier about going to see a play and being mistaken for one of the black actors in the play and like walking out of the theater and just being like no i I have purple hair like what makes you think (laughs) that i was that guy and it's horrible but it's not horrible but yeah it's horrible like uh, uh, and just even modulating Yeah. yeah even her being able to articulate that is articulate an unspeakable thing uh, of that's what it is it's it it's not a play that's like this is the solution to how to live in interracial relationships because every relationship is different like mm-hmm. there there are no two relationships you can put together and say there's an analog mm-hmm. um but ultimately it's this is how this couple is able to go to tomorrow and continue asking questions they won't have answers they have like this is how we navigate it together but at the end of the day they have a lifetime ahead of them of <laughs> moments that are horrible, but not horrible, but yeah, horrible. Yeah. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about was the ending of the play has changed, even just in the process that I have been a part of several times. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what that fine tuning meant to you. Mm. And um, was that ultimately something that, was kind of a thought process that you had been working on for a while? Was it something that once you saw it on its feet, you were like, this is what needs to change? Or was it kind of a new revelation? I want to say a lot of the fine-tuning that happened during this process was the product of revelations and really great questions and being challenged to articulate the gesture of the ending. Because it really, for a very long time, it was just a gesture. Like, Mm -hmm. I knew what I wanted. I wanted, it felt really important to me that we got to hear some version of the ancestors weigh in on this present day world in large part because the play is structured like a comedy and there's so much levity around mm-hmm. these very serious issues. And it felt important to me as a playwright to be like, but don't get it twisted. <laughs> like mm-hmm. slavery. <laughs> but, um, so that I knew I, I wanted to hear their voices and I had this chorus and I occurred to me probably in a, between two early drafts that they sh- ought to be braided into each other and serve the same function. And this idea that the ancestors are, are with us always sort of mm-hmm. embedded that mm. structuring. Um, but for the drafts of the play between that revelation and up to like first day of rehearsal here, the ancestors squabble was sort of dwelling in this place of like people just come out and get to speak their like exposition as characters and, it wasn't really like scratching the itch of what we're left with, I think, at the end of Painted Sip after Stevie's big toast invoking them, right? This like yeah. seance play thing, to borrow a Sarah Holdren term. Like, so, <laughs> what? Anyway, <laughs> um, I say with love, Sarah Holdren's amazing. I'm so sad she's leaving Vulture. Left. I know. Heartbreak. Very sad. She's a great <laughs> critic. Anyway, it would, for some reason, those two pieces did not like. The ancestor coda was not really answering the questions raised yeah. in the in the Stevie monologue, so it became about asking like why they had to what they needed to say more specifically, other than just here's my autobiographical statement. And so 
I, I kind of reverse engineered from the text of Stevie's toast. Like he's asking or he's implying that they would have had this, you know, benediction to give about the people in the present day, but they come in to set the record straight, which is like was the gesture initially, really. So it, I love it was a fine tuning and it was a precisifying, I think, of what has always been the same vague idea. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah. Yeah. And so then where did the uh, cellular pain come from? Oh, that's a great question, too. I don't remember when that became a part of this arithmetic, but I mean, this idea of inherited trauma and what yeah. we carry has been is kind of like baked into the play. Yeah. And even before I quite became cognizant of like the real science behind that term, it was True. something that floated through with this impulse to like have ancestors in it at all. And like, the very act of conjuring them, the act of making this somewhat distant historical event personal, like, I think it necessitates that in this moment when we do have the language of epigenetics and what so. Yeah, I can't say when that became a part of it, that's mm-hmm. to say. But I'm loving the conversations I'm having with people with that frame on the play um, of the inherited trauma, because I think it is a really, it's a very articulate reason for why they come in at the end, I think, that I yeah. didn't have at sure. all. <laughs> well, you know, time. so much of the weight of the understanding of this play is put on the uh, the interracial relationship and kind of understanding that dynamic. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, what I felt the most deeply about was the cellular trauma. So ultimately, my biggest takeaway was not the dynamics of interracial dating, mm-hmm. but the idea that our ancestors, which kind of live in the space around us all the time, directly impact our decision making in our life. You know, the question the mom asks, um, how does this affect you right now? Mm -hmm. And Meg is not educated enough to answer that this lives in my body. Yeah. Yeah. Now we have like a scientific reason why it does. It's not just like a philosophical thing. Yeah. And I've been hearing a lot about that science too lately about how that like, you know, a uh, a famine can affect, you know, a whole generation's <laughs> DNA. And that's what they pass on is this, like, you know. So, yeah, yeah. super interesting stuff. Rage. We had the most fast... I'm spacing on her name just now, but we had a really fascinating dialogue um, uh, after one of the shows last week. Um, a local therapist who specializes in a lot of inherited trauma work, like, spoke to people about this. It was just really exciting. Yeah. Ruby Joy was the moderator, but I don't remember the lady's name. Anyway, gang, hit <laughs> me up in the comments. I'll find out. <laughs> like and subscribe. Oh, yeah. in the comments. <laughs> oh, man. So, okay. So, you guys have obviously been doing this thing for a while in New York. You went to NYU for it. How did you guys get started? Are you theater, you know, high school theater nerds? Are you, how did you get into theater? Chip, we'll start with you. <laughs> um, growing up, uh, my older cousin used to do impressions of everyone in the family, and his impression of my mom was always, who wants to go to a play? And so my mom just took me to a lot of theater as a kid. Um, I remember seeing Beauty and the Beast in the th- in the movie theaters and like hearing stories of like me at three just like performing Cinderella on the staircase for babysitters and just like, like four, I got a, a puppet theater for Christmas and it was just always, this is the thing. Mm-hmm. This, this is where I want to be. 
And I started doing theater when I was like five or six and just never looked back. And <laughs> it, 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 it gave me community in a time when I didn't know it was the thing I craved. Mm. And I, I look back at, I mean, I, I've been doing theater for almost 25 years and almost all of my life is slotted into, oh, I was working on that show at that time mm-hmm. and that's yeah. what was going on. <laughs> right. And it's just, it's always been home in a way. And it, it every day becomes home even more. Mm-hmm. And, and then like there, there came the moment of like in high school, I started directing plays and was given this platform to be able to start to, I like I directed a James Baldwin play when I was 15 and of course um, you did <laughs> of, I directed Tennessee Williams I was starting to get to like dig into these writers and check off and just being able to see myself reflected in a way mm-hmm. that felt so much more immediate than film ever did hmm. and then getting to college and I mean, do you remember that list of 100 plays that they sent us that we had to read before oh, freshman God. year? What? Um, I wish like I this, still had that. I'd, I wish yeah. I still had it. I'm we like, went oh. to state school. We didn't have um, that. <laughs> no shade. It's probably from like somebody's blog. I guess I, <laughs> no shade, no shade, no shade. But everyone, like, the, like, the thing that I kept being told about Playwrights Horizons was it's just theater boot camp. And getting this list of your summer reading is the 100 most important plays ever written and really like the the thing that catalyzed on that list for me and it was very fortunate in timing was sarah kane's blasted was on the list and you were in that i did that show a few years ago yeah i was the soldier i I did the soldier in in, like scene work in college it's a a beast of a a thing and then you lie a lot of you that night i wonder how intimacy directors are dealing with that right Right? now it was was interesting yeah we had an intimacy director for that a couple years ago and she did well kristen munn actually oh amazing work on that one she worked. I don't know. She I didn't she work on at, uh, Redwood, but yeah, she's she's around. Yeah, yeah residence yeah. at mm-hmm. PCS. Yeah. Um, anyways, but yeah, no, it's and it was very fortunate that that fall Soho Rep did the New York premiere of Blasted, <gasps> and oh, I remember going to see that play, and I I was waiting in line to rush it, and it snowed, and it was the first time it had snowed since I moved to New York, and then I saw the play. And it was just this overwhelming experience of, oh, it has to be theater. It just, it has to be. And we were lucky enough to have like really great teachers who were all doing exciting work and are continuing to do exciting work who said really smart things to me. I had a teacher say to me, you should work on new plays. Mm. Um, Ultimately, at the end of the day, being taught, always ask the question, never presume the answer because most of my professional career has just been i sent someone an email and said hey i want to work with you and (laughs) they said yes Mm -hmm. of of most of the closed doors are the doors that you've never tried to open and so just trusting oh okay i have talent i i i have a skill set i have a knowledge base and maybe someone will want to work with me and one day one of those doors will open and fortunately i've been lucky enough to have a lot of doors open yeah yeah <laughs> Brittany. so how did you, how did you oh, get yeah. into this locked um i mean same 
dorky beginnings in a lot of ways. I um, what's your earliest theater experience? I had um I had a theater company when I was eight called Cousins and Company that oh, I formed yeah. around a family vacation. Shut up. Our first production I wrote was um it was an adaptation of the movie Arachnophobia. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Amazing. Yes. So it was the director. It was like the first time I'd met a lot of my cousins and legend has it that I like showed up at this like family beach house and distributed scripts and said, hello, this is what hello, we'll be doing I'm, this week. I'm your cousin and director. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that was like, that was a big part of my life for my early childhood. We did, um, Another production of mine, a Christmas Carol adaptation, and oh, beautiful. an original piece called Dreams, which was probably pretty didactic in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> the Wizard of Oz. Wow. Yeah. Are there copies of these? Yeah. Where are these? You know, my mother probably has them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna find some. Last Publish. year for Christmas, my mother gave me a framed photo that was from Chip Age. The dates means I was five years old. And it was a ticket that I had written to a production I staged uh, in our backyard. Uh, um, and it was like also a letter. So I was like, Jordan and I made this play. Jordan is my younger brother, um, who at the time would have been two. Right. Um, <laughs> we say hello. And here is your admittance to the play. Oh it is at God. 8 p.m. Oh, my gosh. How freaking cute. I mean, my... we were just dreams for our parents <laughs> to be these theater kids <laughs> and have to be driven around to rehearsals yeah. all the time. Yeah. But I just... You know, follow that through i did um drama in high school very similar really and i followed the fire all the way through rent and yeah you know, my problematic coming to it as a you know a, a 90s kid with not full understanding of the heft of the aids crisis um yeah but great music jesus beautiful music much more to say about that <laughs> much more. yeah then i went to nyu and yeah yeah Wow, rest is history. The rest is history. Wow, that's great. Uh, so, like, what keeps you engaged in theater? The, what, why do you keep making theater at uh, this point? Well, I echo a lot of. I mean, I think that your experience at Blasted remains the dream, but also the reality. If like you become a person who lives in theater, then you see it a lot, and I think those experiences become a little more rare, of course. But as your palate and your understanding of how the sausage gets made develops but like i've still had just the most amazing experiences of my life at like my last ex favorite things i've seen you know that they do shock you in a way that film doesn't it's immediate it's so visceral you're like in this breathless dark room with people it's still it's just my jam it's my favorite still it very much is a seance you know yeah and it's that thing that changes at its best when you become someone who sees a lot of theater. Like I think everyone mm. at this table mm. sees a lot of theater, and I, I mean, like it's really hard for me to turn off director brain. Right. And so most theater I see, I'm like not <laughs> redirecting it, but I'm redirecting sure. it in my head. Uh, Watch um, out, Portland! <laughs> but no, he's I, here I, now. <laughs> just fucking with you. It's cool. I'm blushing. Maybe. He's up um, now. But no, love, once you become a practitioner, it, it, I go and see so much theater only because it is a reminder that what we do is hard and there's no wrong way to do it. And so you go and see theater. And for me, like, when I get in the room, it's like, how do I do this? Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's, it's so hard every time because you're just making something out of nothing. Like, yeah. the, at the beginning of a rehearsal process, you have a blueprint 
in the script and <laughs> collaborators. And then the hope is like, we're going to make a real life thing. We all know how to do this, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, it always feels so like you have no idea what's going to happen yeah, it at the is beginning so of every process. Every, every process. Every pro- and, and so you don't going, know how it's going to unfold. You and Never. And I mean, like this process, I could not have told you that it would feel like this now <laughs> five weeks ago. Like I, I truly had no idea what was going to come because <laughs> it, it's different every time. But I love going to see theater because it's a reminder that there is no wrong way to do it. Mm-hmm. You made that choice. Why? It's not the choice I would have made. And then those transcendent pieces of theater where you're watching it and it ends and you're like, I didn't spend any time thinking about anything other than being inside the story mm-hmm. uh, and how overwhelming that can be. Mm-hmm. What it is to actually be taken somewhere and to know that in every moment of the play, your hand was held by the creators and that you were just guided on this journey through this world that is for, I keep yeah. thinking about a strange loop. I was going to say something about a strange loop. Yeah. That what you just said made me think of this idea of totality, right? Like, yeah, what even today in our, our attention brains, you go to a, a movie, even you can still find ways to be distracted. People have their phones out, whatever. And that, this is not a big thing on theater etiquette, I swear, but cause <laughs> fuck that shit. But like, be, seeing a strange loop recently it was like this is what it feels like to be inside of a head and that play like sucked up all of my attention and did not leave me wanting and i was surprised at every moment of it it was just and it is to do with being in a room with people and like aware of what that what's happening in front of you is live and ephemeral and like he's really doing that up there like mm. oh, there's yeah. this mm-hmm. and even though even the wildest best wonderful movies i've seen it's like you still have this layer of remove like everyone's really going to be fine because the movie came out and was edited but like that that like breathless real worry about actual people in front of you something that can only happen in theater mm-hmm. so yeah. yeah i was uh, at i was at a uh, orlando shakes for a playwriting festival this weekend and one of the plays that was done uh, had a lot of magic in it. Mm. And we were just having lots of conversations about part of the beauty of it is like the, there was a question of should this be turned into a film? Because it's very it's structured very well for a film. And the playwright said, no, because <laughs> in film, magic doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But in a, a room with people, magic is... You've got to do it. it, it you got to do it. And and, and <laughs> I think that good theater is just magic. Oh, yeah. totally. It's just, I, I mean, I grew up as, uh, I, I grew up, I am still <laughs> a deep, deep fan of musical theater. And part of what I think has always attracted me to musical theater is that at the end of the day, those performers have done that thing. They have run that marathon. They actually had to do all of those dances, hit all of those notes, be in all of those formations, say all of those lines, feel all of those things. And because musical theater is so heightened, it's just like, you do that eight times mm-hmm. a week. Yeah. You yeah. do that eight times a week and, and, and you're just showing me yourself. And I think that all great theater does that. Of, of, I try to say on every play I work on, if you're not exhausted at the end, you've done it wrong. Mm-hmm. Because to be an actor is it's hard work you're just making yourself vulnerable for a bunch of people to find a moment of catharsis like you you were yeah. you're just a conduit and so yeah. and there there's the beauty in the theater of oh and we're breathing the same air mm-hmm. of 
oh, something could go wrong. Uh, <laughs> usually something does go wrong. Mm-hmm. And how do you keep going? Of There is, I, I always like to say, we don't make products, we make processes that can be repeated because mm-hmm. no two performances of a play will ever be the same. Oh, and I love that too. Oh, that's that's so fun on the inside, right? Mm-hmm. That's what's fun about long runs too. Is I just came off a show that had like a five week run, and it was like kind of hectic getting it open, and then people were like, "Oh, we kind of like this show." And we're like, "Yeah, great!" And then you got to do whatever you wanted with it after that. Yeah. It was so much fun, yeah. so much fun. Just took it even deeper. That's what's I love those long runs. Directors <laughs> love hearing that. <laughs> well, if you stop coming to the show, anything could happen. That was what yeah. to say. That's why Brittany yeah. said she was excited for you to see it. Again. Oh, no, but but it's a thing of like I mean, Redwood like has comfy in it in a way. Yeah. That's exciting totally, you know you're totally. just like yeah yeah i got yeah, yeah. the, the reviewer like whatever. become comfortable and then you get to know more about it mm-hmm. and understand things you didn't know before yeah. Yeah. Just and i mean like redwood has an amazing stage manager and jamie yes. lane jamie lynn and uh they've sent me some emails of like hey like this is where the show's living these are some changes that have been mm-hmm. made like how do you feel about it and it's that thing of of course like that's what happens. You can't it's a process. You mm-hmm. can't. You can't yeah. do anything for. The goal is not for it to be exactly the same every time. The goal is for it to keep the ball in the air. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how you keep the ball in the air is going to be different every time because you're a different person today than you are going to be tomorrow mm-hmm. and then you were yesterday. And so. And and the audience is different mm-hmm. too, and not just you know physically you have different people, but it it's always been interesting to me especially with music like going to see live music how current events affect performances Mm. because you know you come off of an interesting or devastating current event it changes the entire energy in the room especially in a live event you know like the if you're seeing a play the actors are different their energy is different the way the audience responds is different and we're still all in this room Mm -hmm. together to make this thing happen and so you know it's 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 probably I don't know if anything big has happened since we've opened Redwood other than, you know, impeachment and proceedings. But I mean, like, I guess guess at the, uh, there's something really interesting of like making theater in the last two and a half years, really, of like since Trump's inauguration, I remember very much uh, I was working on a production of Side by Side by Sondheim on the day of Trump's inauguration. And I remember sitting in the theater and feeling like or it was the, the the day of the women's march, and I was like, I'm in tech for this play. I love Stephen Sondheim. I I worship at the altar of Stephen Sondheim, and I was sitting in this theater just feeling like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Like what what am I doing? I like during tech, I ordered like four graphic tees that were just like political statements because I just felt, oh. Is this the thing an audience needs right now? Well, when right. we programmed it, we had no idea mm-hmm. yeah. that th- that was going to be the mood. Uh, we had no idea that like three days after, uh, three days before we programmed uh, that we opened this play, that Donald Trump was going to be taking Swan the yeah. oath of uh, and and that way in which art is catharsis of, mm-hmm. of of we go all art we go to see because we want to see ourselves mm-hmm. um and we want to see ourselves reflected in a way that makes sense and the art we consume is generally in the sense of well how does that relate to me 
Yeah. We're, we're as consumers, we are selfish. Like, I mean, that's part of the whole thing is we consume for us. But as art consumers, we are generally going to see art that reifies our worldview um, and occasionally challenges us, but not in the ways that like really force us to make change. <laughs> like that's that's not what we desire. And I think that what's been interesting in the last two and a half years is that well the world is forcing us to confront ourselves on yeah. a daily basis we 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 have so much information that's accessible before we even like roll over in bed like we we, we pull we look at our phones and it's here are the 75 horrific things that happened while you slept and because this administration but it, 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 like, it's so easy to like put it onto it's just what's happening in America in our, our government. But there have always been awful things in the world and we have such access to them now. Mm-hmm. And so it feels like 10 things happen every day. 10 like horrific things that yeah. we should all be talking about. And then there's the question of, well, what's the hierarchy of things we should be talking about? Should we be talking about like what's going on in Bolivia? Should we be talking about Hong Kong? Should we be talking about... Right. And America, then ultimately, we... what should our art be talking about, right, right. in relationship to this um, mass media? And with theater being such a long-form art, how do you address anything in time, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, like, you write something, and then, you know, and then all of a sudden you're performing it three days after the inauguration, or mm-hmm. whatever, you know? It's, and yeah. and well, the irony there, art too. Yeah. And That's... the irony there is that Redwood has been called a timely piece several times. Yeah. And so, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> like, timely in what way? I don't know. I... With all maximum respect and gratitude to the reviewers who use that in a in a kind way, um, I yeah I, I quibble with their use of the word timely, you know, in general as a culture. And I, I think it's a it's, buzzword. Yeah, and it's, it's a signifier of just. Why it's does a it lot make it things. better? Of mainstream. <laughs> well, it's yeah. It's yeah. also become. It's a little it, lazy to me, as a. It, it's quite lazy because it, in the way that, like. Diversity is also a buzzword of like, right. mm. we're doing diverse work. Well, what does that actually mean? Yeah. What is topical as applied to Redwood really mean? Because it's not, it's not like Ancestry.com is old now. Like, so. Yeah. I don't know. I just had a conversation around the like, table with my family recently. Like the other day, my grandma was talking about Ancestry.com and stuff. So No, we are, no, we are <laughs> all. There, no, I yeah. mean like the genealogical explanation. <laughs> sure. I'm just. Yeah. I feel like. But you can think about point. it even like the yeah. last 20 years is still recent. As compared to sure. all other history, but I think for me, what I always say is specifically about Redwood, but also some of the other shows that I've been a part of recently, is that as far as being an African American and having an African American experience within theater, we are now starting to control the narrative in a different way, mm-hmm. and um, and one of the ways that we're using the narrative or using our power of the narrative is to talk about nuance within the black community. Yeah. And that's what's timely about Redwood for me. I love that. Uh And I feel like it's, but I guess it's too a question of like vessel, because when you have a, when you have someone describing the play as timely, who may or may not have proven to have blind spots in general around, like if, I don't know, certain New York Times reviewers or whatever, the way they use the word universal as like a descriptor or a a non-descriptor of a play. It's like, but what do you really mean? But I guess that gets to the core of like the theater and the theater critic 
of the time, the 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 royal theater critic mm-hmm. of to use t- words like universal or timely is about catering to what the idea of the theater go to going audience is, which mm-hmm. is ultimately fifties plus white with money. And so it's, you do this quote unquote timely work by a black writer and it's, well, how does that person feel that average ticket buyer? Um, how does it relate to them? Because ultimately we go to the theater to right. have moments about ourselves. Mm. And so how do you ultimately the critics are as much as we like talk about like, Oh, the, I hated that review. That review was so harsh. The critics are also deeply invested in new work because that's what allows for critics to continue existing. Like if there's no work, there are no <laughs> critics. And so this timely thing is how do you make the theater going the theater review reading public which is a homogenous group feel like this work that i think the theater is doing right now which is saying we want to explore a diverse group of voices how we do that is is a work in progress we are continuing to figure out what happens when you bring people of color into historically white and still predominantly white spaces to do that work uh how do you make a white audience feel like they're not only allowed to come in but they're allowed to see themselves in it Mm -hmm. because they haven't been taught that which i think is the exact opposite of the experience of so many theater artists of color that i know or really artists of color and people of color in that the culture that uh, and i'm speaking particularly to an american culture um of we grew up being told well, you have to find yourself in works that don't reflect you. Of I remember being, I was 15 when Brokeback Mountain came out, and that felt very important as like a queer kid at an all-boys Catholic school in Missouri being like, oh my God, there's this movie about queer experience, and that feels relevant to me. There is nary a person of color <laughs> in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I saw so much of myself in a way in that film that it allowed me to feel like, oh, I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And I think that most white audiences have not, say for really Raisin in the Sun mm-hmm. and August Wilson, in the theater, they have not been taught, oh, that experience of that young Asian woman, that experience of that right. trans Indian man, that experience of that interracial couple. They have not been taught you can reflect yourself in that. Mm-hmm. You can see yourself in that. There are universal human truths that are being reflected because for so long the idea has been, well, it's just going to be a white man or a white woman in mm-hmm. as the protagonist, mm-hmm. and that's how you're going to see yourself. The work to see beyond, and also yeah. why I say particularly American is because race is so much a part of our vernacular mm-hmm. that we have long been able to say, that's not my experience because that's my not my racial experience. Do you think the role of theater is changing to almost be, I don't want to say synonymous, but linked to um, identity? Like, do you think the role hmm. of theater is starting to become about talking about identity? Um, hmm. As opposed to where where it's been, which is, I mean, it's obviously storytelling, but do you think that now, I mean, obviously the time that we live in now is all about identity. 
but do you think that the role of theater is now to tell those stories the role of theater that's such a meaty big one yeah it's a general but it's, it's an yeah. idea i'm thinking of right now yeah i guess for me like isn't that the role of not just theater but art in general and what has always been but you know visual art's different and music's <laughs> different because in they're allowed to be expressive in these ways that can be you know totally abstract or totally commercial in ways where theater when you go to see a play you expect to have some sort of like like we were talking about earlier where the experience is going to have some sort of like intellectual tug on you Mm -hmm. it's going to have an emotional tug on you you expect to have it you, you expect it to be kind of i don't know you expect the role of theater when you go to see a play to have some deep changing impact on you people like they're seeing a play they're you know if they're not seeing a musical that is about you know romance mm-hmm. they expect that they're going to leave the musical or, or the play specifically changed in some way yeah. we just and nowadays it seems to be so tied to identity well i think it's the panoply of people that we in the the dominant culture rather um decides to recognize as human has grown then like necessarily there's just there's a lot of ground to cover right there's like i feel like a lot of art ambassadors from groups that have been historically disenfranchised in america are like yeah i am eager to tell my story my like my my ridiculous rom-com or my da 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 like because for such a long time the landscape has looked a certain way and so it's not that I feel like things are like racing to catch up to the dominant culture in this way, but like I, I feel like I definitely feel the urge as a creator to be like, no, I want to insist on my humanity and the mm-hmm. I ness of this story and these characters, like mm-hmm. as being the vessel for the story. I'm not, I'm less interested in the idea play or the setting play because I, I well, the people I, the stories I haven't seen yet and the ones that I'm burning to tell have to do with like insisting on my own humanity to th- mm-hmm. that's still. So to that extent, I think, yes, it's a moment. F- where, um, you know, meaningful, rigorous, interesting autobiography or autobiography adjacent work from groups of people is really exciting. And I think it's in vogue and cool to the extent that whatever, that's dumb. But yeah, I don't know. I also think like we're still, I guess I'm struggling with the headiness of that one because some we still are in a stories drive us still. Right. And I, I guess when I get down to the meat of that question, it's like I, I as a writer, don't, I can't separate like character and story very easily. I think like the very good ones like do live in that eye space and they are driven by. Is that what led to you playing the lead role in the play that you wrote? Oh, <laughs> mania, you asked? No, 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 not megalomania, <laughs> but you know, you're talking about the eyeness of it and it was obviously a very personal thing and then you wrote it and well, played the lead and yeah. I mean, I'd like to say that was part of my, well, maybe. Maybe, yeah. But I think it also, like, having to make room for the fact that I think when I really think about the beauty of the moment in art that we're in, and I think the internet has a lot to do with it, I think just being aware of people is, for so long, the rule was you have to be one thing. Mm -hmm. In this capitalist society, you have to specialize in one thing Mm -hmm. and be that thing, and that's all you are. And... I mean, we live in a gig economy now, and most of us have gig upon gig upon gig. You know, what's so interesting is people don't understand that, that that's such a big generational divide. It's yeah. th- that we think about our lives in this kind of like eclectic way now, 
that our parents just really didn't have mm-hmm. to do. I just did a science-themed birthday party for kids like six hours ago. So <laughs> gig economy, oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, I used to yeah. write ebook romance novellas. <laughs> I was a shuffleboard instructor. I've been yeah. a shuffleboard instructor. That's hilarious. well, I worked at a shuffleboard bar, but my job my mom's favorite bar is a shuffleboard bar now. Oh my god! <laughs> In Cleveland, yeah, <laughs> she's like, I love the shuffleboard bar. Yeah. Well, um, but I, I am still interested in what was it like to step into the role that you developed into oh, May? Totally, yeah. Well, it was really fun. It was really scary. It brought up a lot of like ego and frightening stuff around me, and, and I think I'm very glad for the opportunity. Increasingly more all the time, but and I think it was I think I was right. But <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, but it's made me more confident as an artist, and I think it's really a cool. I think it's a really cool thing for all hyphenate performers, if that's a proclivity that interests anybody, to like have to go back into your work every single day, like justify to yourself, like, right, you built this, and this is what it's like to sit in it, and like this is what it's like to hear it every night. And this line is like, maybe I'll cut that later, but like, no, I don't know. Learning how to live with both those heads on at the same time has been really fascinating. Did you find yourself like cringing a lot during the process? No, not Really? really. Oh, and this is this is something also like kind of hippy dippily insist on like for me i am vibrating at such a neurotic pitch most of the time <laughs> like being able like to having two jobs uh that with both required so much and like demanded like establishing trust and love with all with all these like unique relationships that you build when you're in a cast and then when you're the director and when you're a playwright like it was really helpful to me to be that busy <laughs> too. Mm. <laughs> like I, yeah, that the way that my brain works, I was like, okay, I don't have any time to like really sit in my ego really because I have to work physically all the time all on the both time. ends. Yeah. And um, this story is so personal and it is so, I do believe, I mean, I only stepped into it initially because I think I wrote Meg in my voice and I did, I've told Chip and you this before, I think, but like I've I've heard really formidable people read that part and like they should do it later and they were and I learned a ton. Amazing actors have done it, but I was like, I think like this da 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 da. Like I I just <laughs> it's so fascinating because in the first workshop we did of this together, I I insisted I was like I need you to be a writer. Mm-hmm. I, I I need you to be a writer. So I'm we, glad you did. And like the actor who did it, her name's Rihanna Wood. She's based in Kansas City as of today. And she's so great. And, and she, she should do this part. Someday she's so she good. To. She should do this part. <laughs> and I think we learned so much being able to be outside of it in that way. And so there was a different, mm-hmm. there was a different thing of, I also, I, I now laugh at it, but like the day that I saw the workshop in New York mm-hmm. where at the end of it, I was like, so yeah, like you want to act in it too? <laughs> that afternoon I had seen, Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me and this idea of like performer playwright, like the, the power of watching a playwright perform their own work. And there's that question of like, of like this moment being about identity. Well, I mm-hmm. guess all art making has always been about identity. Like ultimately, if you make a piece of art, it's this is a thing that interests me and it's some shit that I think is cool. Like, right. Like at the end of the day, that's why we make art. Like there's the question of like, and it's maybe important. Sure. But (laughs) like, but, but ultimately it's like, this shit is really cool and interesting to me. Mm -hmm. And what's different and why I think we're talking about identity is because the people who are really the gatekeepers to the theater have predominantly looked a certain way. Mm -hmm. And now 
we're seeing a moment in which the art that is being created in this medium, the person creating it is changing. Yeah. And at the end of the day, like I don't need to make my work black because it's coming from me and I am black. Therefore <laughs> my blackness is embedded in the work. And so it's not that my work is all about my identity. It's rather than that, rather that the people who are looking at it are saying, well, it was made by a black person. And so clearly their blackness has inspired it, which is not untrue because my experience as a black human walking around in America for the last 30 years influences everything I make. Right. Another great moment mm -hmm. was um, when Stevie in the show says that this is our particular blackness, mm. which I feel like is such a powerful statement for yes. such an, uh, uh, you know, there's such a dynamic group of people, black people, and we are constantly either forced by culture into this monolith or we do it to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's an interesting concept to present on stage to say, hey, like blackness is different, really based on your family, based on your identity, based on your experience of your blackness. It's not just and, you know, and the thing is, is Meg has blackness. She has these moments where she's like, my blackness represents itself in feeling this way about the way this napkin trash got put in mm -hmm. my hand. You know, that's that's a moment of me understanding my blackness. But, yeah, uh, but the also world to say, puts it on you. Yeah. But also to say that like Meg has blackness in every moment of her life because she's black. Right. Exactly. Like, the, yeah. all, the, the, the filter the that thing is that we forget about all mm -hmm. different types of black people like, you know, and, and, mm. there's a lot of there's a lot of times you hear people say, oh, well, they're not black or like, oh, you could have black hey, hey, and all that. I grew up embedded in that. We could have a whole <laughs> four hour discussion Oreo. on like being called an Oreo as a teenager. Right. And, yeah. and what that means. And I think that something that's so particular about Redwood is that it's about a light-skinned black family. Mm, um, yeah, you said that well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that is, I, I think that the three of us had, have had many conversations the about East like- East Coast. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> about like the particulars of growing up light-skinned and the privilege that comes with it. But also, at the end of the day, you're still black. Well, not and, just light-skinned, but yeah. uh, a black family that moves- through white, white spaces yes yes which is thank you for that distinction yeah, yeah. because it's, yeah that's and there's there's, there's another conversation you could have about, about the way people are relating to the play because i've heard from mm -hmm. people they're like oh it's a wonderful play but why is everybody got to be light-skinned mm. and i'm like oh well you just don't get it and, and this is from black people yeah you mm. know or um accident of casting but, but not an accident of no. casting i think it, it's <laughs> it, it, there's been so little room for nuance and understanding blackness. Yeah. And for a very good reason. Yeah. I mean, of course, we've had to make ourselves a monolith politically and yeah. for all these reasons mm -hmm. because no one else has you, protected us. How do you like, assemble? How do you, yeah. how, how do you how organize? How do you find your people? How do you signal to them? You do the nod. That's yeah. a dumb example. Uh, oh, but. No, but, but no. <laughs> but then ultimately, there's a pressure put on work by artists of color because I, you can go see... I'm not going to name playwrights because that would be mean. Yeah, but you could, go, you could go see a play by any white playwright writing right now, and there's no pressure on them to write about the white experience. Yeah, they're, right. like, they're, 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 You are not going to go see that play and think, 
well, so-and-so had such an interesting take on whiteness. No one will read it that way either. That's uh, never been written in a uh, review. But you know what? <laughs> I'm interested in that play, I think, in this particular climate. Because I think that even within Redwood, seeing this nuanced understanding of whiteness is interesting. Mm. Because then you get exactly the cellular pain of that experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Whereas... I recommend Will Arbery on that point. But like, <laughs> not that he needs any more blowing up, but... But but ultimately, like, hey, well. what he's doing is like, in having seen one of his plays and heard a lot about yeah. the other one, he, he's he, really wonderful. He's my friend. He's not listening to this anyway. He might. Who he knows? Might. Um, but like uh, the play of his that I've seen, like what it is is it's going so far into one specific family's experience yes. and how the privilege of whiteness affects that experience and also the confines of whiteness affect that experience. Mm -hmm. And I think that what Redwood does so beautifully is to say, let's look at this family of a certain class of a certain color Mm -hmm. of a certain place on the black skin spectrum. And let's look specifically at them and their experience. And this is not a stand-in. It is not a stand-in for interracial relationships. It's not a stand-in for black experience. It's not the stand-in for the experience of 26-year-old women. Mm-hmm. It's not the stand-in experience for mothers who are finding themselves going through divorces. It's not the stand-in experience for a, a middle-aged gay black man who's trying to search for identity. It's about these specific people. But we've been trained to believe, well, we have to look for clues mm-hmm. as to what they're saying about, like... It can't just be this is a comment on Uncle Stevie and his experience of the intersectionality of queerness and blackness. It's this has to be a commentary on the intersectionality between queerness and blackness for all queer black men. Mm -hmm. And it's no, like it's a family of does it's uh, Stevie. I wish for that. I wish for that more mundane. You know, and and also actually the set of the play that we're sitting on right now, Brothers Paranormal, dove into that a bit with, you know, Thai families and Mm. African American families, and in a similar way, just told the story of a family Mm-hmm. And you learned a lot along the way, especially from your culture outside of the culture that you're watching. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't, you know, about that I to a certain that. extent. So I, I think that as we move into these plays that are looking more into identity and we have more of a like um, acceptance of non-white <laughs> families, you know, <laughs> we can learn a lot without having to say, well, what is it about this experience that is Thai or what is it yeah. about the experience that is black? It's like wow, look at this family. Because so many of the plays I've seen, those, you know, traditional, you know, Amer- modern American, you know, family dramas were interesting because they were looking at this weird fucking family, yeah. right? You I know? just had a workshop on this, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, thank you, PCS, for trusting me. But, <laughs> like, the, the only real gist and point of it that I wanted people to take away was just like, oh, this specificity. That is, like, I think that's just yeah. the secret, right? Like, yeah. I mean, that's what they tried to, ram into our heads in college yeah but yet you get like crash winning the oscar and shit sometimes but like it's just no matter what you're attempting to do ever like it just behooves you to breathe life into your characters yeah that's uh that's great let's let's take a break here you can find radical listening from virtual sonic reality on apple podcasts google play and spotify so find us on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe to follow along while you're there why don't you just go ahead and give us five stars you know you love us, and we love you too. So, thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. All right, time for headlines. Headlines, <laughs> headlines, headlines. 
so everyone's favorite. This is everyone's favorite part of the show everyone's where so we scared about this part. We get on the internet, get on Twitter and Reddit mostly, <laughs> and find things that people are talking about, and we are going to bring them up and get your take. What is Twitter? It's something that Brittany knows a lot about. Our president's real into it too. Look, Phil Johnson line. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Branding. So uh, the first headline. Um, this one is is a fun one. I just found this out a couple days ago. Um, Netflix. So the headline reads: <laughs> Netflix is testing a feature that lets you speed up boring episodes. And to so one point five, baby. Yeah, yeah. So basically, this is new what feature will let you speed up what? or slow down video playback. So you can like, you know, like how you do podcasts sometimes or YouTube videos. You can now do that on Netflix for your TV shows. Oh, so you can yeah. like get through the office, you know, oh, the yeah, way it was can, intended. You can skip a lot of the stuff before James Spader gets there, but after Michael leaves, or just speed him up. <sighs> I mean, I guess the strange thing because trying to make the analog between. You can do it on podcasts, which, like, as someone who listens to a lot of podcasts, I love that feature. Mm-hmm. But the medium of podcasting is built knowing, like, someone's going to try to speed this up. <laughs> like, like, like that's yeah. It's about information getting relayed versus yeah. a show where maybe they were thinking about things other than just pure information <laughs> getting relayed. But well, maybe yeah. not. Yeah. But, but and I guess the thing of like. So frequently with podcasts, this is not true of all podcasts, but so many of them are like this one, a group of awesome people just sitting around talking about shit. And if you can digest that faster than we actually were able to formulate the thoughts and articulate them, good for you. Yeah. Ingest it. But ultimately, like, if I'm making an episode of television, television is a very precise medium in terms of time (laughs) well that's and that's that's what i heard is that you know the people who are mad about it are mad that it's going to throw off comedic timing it's going to throw off well it 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 ignores comedic timing because Mm -hmm. ultimately the thing that's different between a filmed medium and a theatrical medium is the relationship to the audience yeah um you and then i guess that's the the thing you give up when you're making a film or making a visual medium is you're giving up can the relationship between audience and performer of i think i I saw it too a few months ago Mm -hmm. and like it's not a very good movie and (laughs) halfway through i was like i've been sitting here for an hour and 20 minutes and i really need to pee and i don't feel like i'm gonna miss anything if i go and pee so i'm gonna go and pee if i was seeing a play and we're at the hour 20 minute mark and i feel like i gotta pee but maybe act one's gonna be over in 20 minutes <laughs> i am far more likely to hold it and <laughs> and, and navigate that <laughs> i had that it at depends. the baltimore waltz the other day mm-hmm. but yeah. i made it to the end i was really mm, proud of myself that's great it's hard nowadays hard let me tell you i do appreciate when a show has an intermission because i can't just sit there for a long time without having to pee that's mostly that's the main reason like i can totally see and usually when i'm in a show i'm like no intermission please and i can make it through no problem but if i'm sitting there i'm like you know if you're gonna make me sit there more than 90 minutes you're gonna have to let me go somewhere you know i hate them as a concept i mean we fought i understand we did not fight but we had we had many many respectful discussions no but i'm like Uh, i pee like four times during act one i'm like how dare i ask (laughs) (laughs) but i guess because i i just finished doing this workshop of a play by carolee corthron where 
it is a one act Mm -hmm. and decidedly that play the container that it's in it it needs to be in a one act form like Mm -hmm. that the the play cannot live without the one act form and i think what was beautiful because when we went into rehearsals redwood was a one act Mm -hmm. um and i think what happened was the play revealed itself of we actually do need that break um we actually do need that time you've put a lot of i'm increasingly large... glad for it yeah. it works yeah. as it is like i was like oh god i'm ready to pee and like oh what's gonna happen next yeah. <laughs> thank like, you give me 10 minutes <laughs> both of the reasons for intermission <laughs> and, and i guess it's also because there's so much meat in act two that mm-hmm. act one clocks in at approximately 56 minutes mm-hmm. and if I have to, and Act Two is approximately about, approximately fifty six minutes. Act Two is approximately fifty two minutes. Well, combined, that's one hundred eight minutes. It's an hour forty eight. Mm-hmm. If that was one act, well, most people are going to have to pee at yeah. some point in that. And how, how much of it am I going to hear? Yeah, uh, where it, where it the does meat is affect your experience. It, yeah. yeah, and it, it, the first act feels like it flies by, uh-huh. and then I feel like. If you were, you lose the time, you lose that speed, you lose that tempo. If you if you keep going, because mm. if you keep going, what happens is now I'm thinking about the play. I'm thinking about how long I've been here. I'm sure. thinking about you know yeah. having to use the restroom, and so you lose that feeling of like, wow, that went really fast, and now I'm really interested to see what happens in Act Two and da da da. But I also am of the camp that movies need intermissions. Oh, like yeah. I think everything they used to needs. I, I saw for the fiftieth anniversary. I saw at um, Lincoln Center a screening of Ben Hur, and yeah. they honored the intermission. Oh, yeah! And it was like I, I went with a mentor of mine. That's a long and movie. Though. We yeah. we went and stood outside during the intermission. I was like, "This is lovely. Mm. <laughs> this is this is." I got to go outside and see the sun before going back into another hour and 30 minutes of a fairly heavy movie. and Gone with the Wind. You can't see the face I'm making, but um, it was was intense. (laughs) Okay, great. So the next one, this headline, maybe you heard about this, but um, an artist hired hundreds for a slave rebellion reenactment. Oh, I did see this. I did not that. see about this, but what? Yes, so it was uh, the they reenacted the German Coast Uprising. It was the largest slave rebellion in history, and uh, the artist's name is Dred Scott. <laughs> and, hey, right, like Dred. Yeah, he hired five hundred volunteers and period garb for a twenty-six mile march. Yeah, that was I it. mean, hired volunteers. Well, or so. recruited. Okay. Yeah. Again, I'm coming off of spending a week doing a workshop of a play that is about <laughs> slavery over the course of 800 years, well into the future. And and this was literally happening kind of next door to you. Probably at the was... same time. I think this was in um, Louisiana. Okay. And asking the question of, like, from the American vantage point, it's so easy to think of slavery as a thing that had a beginning and an ending. Mm. And... There are over 21 million documented cases of slavery in mm-hmm. the world today in 2019. Right. Um, but it just doesn't look. We have been brainwashed because the education system in this country is terrible and because capitalism into believing that slavery looks one very 
particular and specific way and yeah. the, the 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 innovation of slavery in the united states as it existed was let's make it let's draw it across racial lines and you know and there's nothing about the story that we tell ourselves about the history of slavery um helps us have a better conversation about it because we completely neglect all of the types and forms of slavery that continue to exist but that other people have lived through Mm -hmm. you know i mean we we kind of like shun other ethnic groups and um black people or no just our culture the way we talk about slavery based on the way that um we have kind of formed this conversation about what slavery is and it's really interesting because you hear you you'll hear from all kinds of people especially like people who are like eastern european or like you know in all different types of places in the world who are have histories of slavery and there you know the conversation whenever slavery comes up has almost been branded american slavery and so it it makes it so that you, we have a blind spot when we talk about slavery as it exists today mm-hmm. slavery has it has always existed in this world and it it really isn't it does a disservice i think to the conversation i i think also that the fact they're doing a reenactment of a slave rebellion is really cool because how many reenactments do you hear about civil war reenactments mm-hmm. that's a whole thing yeah, people that's do so true yeah you know and especially in the south where people you know and so how do we you know move this forward of a reenactment of what was you know what was the other struggles that were going on mm-hmm. beyond just the civil war which was supposedly fro- fought to yeah. free black people yeah. when there's a lot of other things going but, on well and, and and it becomes this actual erasure of to think that slavery like we we are so privileged to think that slavery is about race because that's how it was in america slavery as an idea is about two things power and commerce that's mm. what slavery is about yeah race is just the very specific yeah. thing of like so. this to say the civil war is the a, invention for justifying yeah. that it was about power and commerce. exactly right. um like to say that the civil war is about race is to misunderstand the civil war entirely yeah. however at least my experience was i was taught the civil war was fought over slavery right and it took me years before i was like Oh no! Actually, th- th- this is what it is, and these are Lincoln's complicated still thoughts a taboo about slavery and conversation. Uh, like, um, it, who it's, said it, the Civil War is about race? Weird. Oh, people or say slavery. That. Oh, I yeah. mean, just in yeah. No, but that, that's a very that's a frustrating conflation cause... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah, because it, it, it misunderstands what was actually happening in this country. Yeah, yeah. Um, and race is an invention, like almost after the fact of the mm-hmm. Civil War. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was kind of solidified during Jim Crow, yeah. really. Yeah. Um, Look at Black Reconstruction, yo. Which, it, yeah, yeah. And I mean, to show what's like, that? <laughs> a reenactment of the slave rebellion is to show that yeah, change happened not just because of a governmental change, but because you know, people rose up. In a violent uprising, yeah. Mm-hmm. To I mean, it, it all over. You know, it's about the people who were enslaved taking back their. Yeah, you'll appreciate you know. that because still a lot of the narrative does seem to be like John Brown. And yeah, like, you know, Harriet Beecher Stowe. I mean, we're in a moment in which but don't get it twisted. We have a, 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 a film and uh, a major motion picture in theaters that re- reimagines Harriet Tubman 
as a magical Negro who oh, I was hearing about this movie. <laughs> who like yeah, have you seen this already? Oh, I, I I have no desire to see that movie. I have no desire to like. Yeah, I had a friend who saw it recently and mm-hmm. see like, like yeah. the hidden figures yeah, version of harriet tubman's life like hidden figures was nice that was like a fun mom no but but ultimately <laughs> hidden <movie>. figures <laughs> is speaking to a specific time and a specific idea and doing a thing yes that if you know anything about harriet tubman's life i don't know i'm gonna go on record and saying that hidden figures is not good oh no no <laughs> Uh, I think Hidden Figures <laughs> is a great show. movie, and I think that Hidden Figures has easy politics. Yeah, uh, yes. and, and I think that that's good. You yeah, have well to put. you have to divide those two things. Of as audiences, we are much more interested mm-hmm. in easy politics than well, yeah. Than it goes quality. back to what you were saying before about this question of audience and like what the gesture is to soothe or make palatable or to make any kind of art that like allows people to come to it and sit and be like well that is safely other from me yet i may congratulate myself on being here to experience it <laughs> so even if it's like something as radical and wild as like harriet tubman's life if you can go and be a person in the audience who's like yes well well done yes like that <laughs> that's when, a shame somehow when, like the reality yeah. is like this has nothing to do with me yeah. <laughs> she yeah, right? was a powerful woman yeah like she should be on the 20 dollar bill glass ceiling bursted <laughs> by harriet tubman i mean it's like but you know there's something just to make this connection you talk about cellular memory like there's just something interesting about um and i've been having this conversation lately about uh, black suffering and how it, it seems to be bubbling kind of like in culture and so the fact that we have the slave rebellion happening and um movies like harriet and stuff like that there's still this kind of like you know it's almost like alameda is still speaking mm-hmm. you know in some ways she's like no 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 i'm not done like this conversation's not over and i'm you know the fact that people are taking time out of their day to go and do a slave rebellion is massive yeah and, yeah and i guess at the end of the day like White people have been making shitty art about white people for a really long time. <laughs> like, do like I, I, my first thought is like that stupid LBJ <laughs> movie. Of like, who, who cares? Who cares? But like, ultimately, because of the, the the structure of a biopic, he has to be the hero, and we're gonna make a movie that crafts him as the hero of this. Yeah, and it's that same formula that's being. <laughs> used to make a harriet tubman biopic because it's right and like how deep are they going to actually tell like are they going to tell everything about lbj no and there's so much they're going to tell the things that ultimately at the end of the movie you can say yeah patting myself on the back right president great job me for engaging with this story like that's the point of a biopic is of like thinking of like uh, tina opened on broadway this week yeah and like the story of Tina Turner is one of triumph, but to go back through her catalog and say, how do we reappropriate these songs? Yeah. Yeah, how do we to- remove her humanity? <laughs> to her when narrative people arc? are living too, or when their very recent descendants have yeah. a lot of creative control over whatever art is being made about them, I do think that is a big influencing factor. Like, I'm mm-hmm. sure no one's going to write, like, I'm hard pressed at just this moment to think of the example of the hard hitting biopic <laughs> about a person who's around. But I even think about yeah. like Judy. I mean, <laughs> we well, could, it's like we that could have a whole podcast about Judy. Oh but, yeah, we could talk about Wu Ting. 
but would you talk be? About, but, but somewhere you talk between about them, we all meet. Um, yeah, Lincoln. Mm. Lincoln. Of like, ultimately, from moment one, announces itself as important. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the whole the whole reason you see Lincoln. Lincoln is which like is, the Joe Biden of movies. <laughs> Lincoln, which is a very long, boring movie that I fell asleep in in the theaters the first time I saw it. Um, uh, nah, I'm never gonna see Lincoln. <laughs> Why did you go see Lincoln? Yeah. Because we want to feel good about ourselves. I'll see Lincoln if like my uncle and I like had to bond because like a tragedy was happening and we weren't like there at the hospital. Yeah. I don't know. I whatever. <laughs> Great. Uh, let's move on to plugs. <laughs> All right. right. Yeah. So uh, this is a section where we plug things that we um, want people to see or know about. And um, so, yeah, what's going on? Well, the sad thing of making theater is that when you get to the point of it where you're like, oh, it's about to happen. You don't get to see, see any other else. theater. <laughs> think about what am I going to see? So all of the plays that I've loved in the last couple of months that I would love to plug are closed <laughs> but i'll say like uh things i've really loved in the last few months are uh complex um uh were you in that yeah i was in that yeah. oh my god for I'm a so little bit i missed it just a little while it i know dominic oh my god oh cool yeah yeah well i'm doing his next play here Dope. in february so yeah that's so cool come back to portland come back to portland. Um, hey, hey. i love Aww. the baltimore waltz uh profile um, I wish I had seen that. I continue to think about with grand frequency the Bakai at uh, uh, Shaking, Shaking the, the tree. tree. You got to see that? Um, it was so good. Uh, I, I, yeah, we saw it together. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, good. And just thinking about, like, uh, particularly those last 20 minutes and what happens when you wake up from the thing that you've been seduced by. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you have to see the actual blood on your hands <laughs> and your body and like oh my god i've been ignorant of this thing because i've worshipped at the altar of this idol and thinking about like what idols are we worshiping and how does that affect us um, you know i went out in a dress for the first time in ever after the directly after seeing that play because it was halloween i didn't have a costume mm. and the girlfriend was like what about putting on a dress and some makeup? And I was like, you know what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. <laughs> picks or it didn't happen. <laughs> Those picks are <laughs> some messy picks. Let me tell you. <laughs> and selfishly, not selfishly, but um, I always want to support the company that employs me. And I love working for PCS. And so we are about after Thanksgiving to begin performances of Miss Bennett, mm. uh, Christmas at Pemberley, Good directed by Marissa Wolf. Sound designed by Phil Johnson. Hey, There's hey. some dope um, actors in it, yo. And some really dope, dope actors and collaborators on that one. And then after that, uh, beginning performances, December 28th, uh, PCS is doing a production of Hedwig and the Angry Inch, which uh, some fool named Chip Miller is directing. Hey, hey. And I think it will be a really fun time. Great. Oh, God. Beautiful. <laughs> Which of your uh, romance novels should we read? (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I I always sort of resent bringing that up to myself. I don't think you should read any of them. It's really... Because it's not very good writing. Like, I was writing very fast to make money. 
Mm. <laughs> I have a friend who does a audiobook of lesbian erotica as one of her side hustles. And that Good. sounds like the most fun. Good work. Like, let me yeah, find something like that. Yeah, I never got like to that. do an LGBT one. I was pitching them all the time. But yeah. I had a very staid and sort of conservative publisher. And so they're like a quarterback erotica. bait. It's <laughs> Okay. I'm sorry. What is the pen name for this? Like, what are you, are you going to give that up? Celia Loren. Or Abriella Blake. Ooh, also known as names. How I Lost a Night of My Life because all I'm going to do when I get home is read all of it. No, but I really don't want you to because of the writing. Like, if I felt better, like, I was writing these so fast. We all fast. saw Redwood, so we know you can write. Don't worry. No, We're going to enjoy like, ourselves. I want to see what you do for my name. Yeah. God. That's hilarious. Do you have anything else to plug? Oh, man. What? So many things, probably. But what came to mind are two books that I've loved and keep giving to people periodically. Um, Heads of the Colored People, the short story collection by Nafisa Thompson Spears. I give it to you. No pressure. Read it whenever you want to. It's in my bag. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. She's amazing. And, like, it's relevant to our discussion today about, like, you know, Mm -hmm. blackness not being a monolith. That Key and Peele sketch. Anyway, um, it's just, it's funny and it's wild and it's humane and kaleidoscopic and it's a book i keep coming back to in my head uh this essay collection thick by tressie mcmillan cotton mm. i'm gonna i don't know how to pronounce your last name actually but uh it's it's a really succinct cool hard look at race in america from like a very smart amazing woman's perspective and it's the kind of essay collection you read where it's like I, I knew all of this but this is the perfectly phrased version and like it feels so good to have it spoken out loud I think it's a great book mm-hmm. and uh, Trick Mirror by Gia Tolentino I was about to bring I bought it oh, today because yes! of your recommendation and I read The Eye in Internet okay, tonight cool. before I came here and I can't <gasps> wait to read sister. more <laughs> I'm a fan she's just I think she's a lady who's really got her finger on like how this current generational head has been malformed by social media and mm. love that. yeah so i do recommend that book and i think it's a good conversation starter and good fuel for the philosophical fire is. and uh, heroes that... of the fourth turning at playwrights horizons is beautiful it's running through november that's the last play i saw other than oh no all the plays you mentioned which i heartily echo that we went to see together yeah and oh. macbeth at pcs yeah um sorry it's a podcast studio right now you're good didn't mention it until now because part of me knew that but let me say that people were just like tossing that word around during our process i was like god can we (laughs) not please (laughs) um having just been in orlando where they're also doing a production of mackers the superstition around saying it in that building people slap you orion's like i'm gonna cut you with his face people are serious about that i heard there's a dispensation if the production is being done in the building. I have. I fully I believe if a, there's a production Maybe being done in the building, you are but do you have to, to be involved with the production? If you're in the building, Mackers you're involved confusing. with it. Yeah. Yeah. Confusing. Thing. Just always. I had to explain it to some high school students recently. I'm like, yeah. you know. I mean, superstition is like, bullshit. But I don't whatever. know. He didn't. I'm not afraid of him. <laughs> the witches and the concept of fate and de- like malformed destiny are stirring. That dude himself isn't that scary to me. No, His it's wife, more about the maybe. fly rail dropping. Mm. Oh, and lights. <laughs> I suppose that's the thing. <laughs> I would also be remiss without mentioning um, 
of a chapbook of poetry called <gasps> A Year in Loss and Factory oh my God, by T.S. So Leonard. Um, oh, nice. That I think we both read. Yes, uh, that I, I, I read it twice on an airplane last night and was like openly sobbing on the plane of just uh, a deep look at what it is to be alive in 2019 and grappling with love and loss and responsibility and i i find it to be a a really really beautiful collection of poems about being a human right (laughs) um i'm gonna plug some friends of mine uh just started running something called the curious cabaret um there's some good clown friends of mine known as a little bit off (laughs) <laughs> and uh, they did. They just started doing a monthly show last month, which I didn't get to catch, but they're doing it the third Sunday of every month. So uh, they're going to have the No No November uh, version on Sunday, the no- uh, November 17th. And uh, that should be cool. And then in December, whatever day that is, I'm going to be doing some science tricks live at Curious, Ca- uh, Curious Cabaret. So uh, come by and check it out. Watch me put an egg in a bottle. Oh shit! There you go. The third Sunday in December. Third Sunday in December. Whatever I will that is. be here. And I, I will move yeah. here. What, I what time? See that. Uh, Eight p.m. Sundays oh, at Curious Comedy, which is down on uh, MLK Northeast somewhere. I yeah. will. Uh, I'm gonna try to go. I'll let that. you know. <laughs> um, I just want to mention that uh, the Brothers Paranormal at Coho Theater will be running um this weekend it closes this weekend so if you can come see it definitely see it it was a wonderful play it was on the 18th um i also want to give a shout out to sold which is a vanport mosaic production um directed by damaris webb and that (gasps) starts on wednesday and runs for 10 days um so if you get a chance to see i honestly think that sold is a great uh compliment to redwood so if you've seen Redwood, Sold does a pretty good job of Sold. Sold. Sold S O U L D. Oh, sold. okay. It's like a I'm seeing apostrophe. Both, yeah, yeah. both of them this week and I great, cannot great. wait. So yeah, I think that they complement each other in really nice ways and um uh you know, Damers does lovely work, so definitely see that as well. Mm-hmm. And I just wanna Thank you guys again for coming on the show. Can we just keep doing this? This has been so <laughs> Come much back fun. So much we can do it with the mics turned off. <laughs> but that's no fun because Hello, we're the millennials. We, we have to leave a mark. That's true. Let's live stream it. didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> it is fun. I'm like imagining people listening to it. Yeah. yeah. That's exciting. Oh, I'm just going to listen to Congrats on your beautiful podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Oh, thank, thank you so much for coming, you guys. Yeah, this is so been, good. This has been fantastic. So, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Legit. Thanks for listening. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Radical Listening. If you have questions or would like to reach out, feel free to reach out to our email, which is radicallisteningpodcast at gmail.com, or visit the Coho Theater website for more information. And thanks for listening.